one day the, this group came out and they said, weren't you a police officer? And I said, yes, which everybody knew it was. They said, we have an opening in our security department in Amico, and would you like to join? Well, that was a no-brainer. Welcome to Creating Community with Dorian and Jake, a podcast designed to bring area leaders, business owners, and other interesting people together to better our community. I'm your co-host, Jake Starkey. And I'm your other co-host, Dorian Strickland. We're the owners of 1820 Marketing and 1820 Coffee House in the heart of Alvin, Texas. We're in season two of the podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to showcase the amazing people, businesses, and organizations we have in and around Brazoria County. If you know someone who should be highlighted, please email us at info at 1820marketing.com and let us know. Today, we are again at the Alvin Manville Area Chamber of Commerce, one of the sponsors of this podcast. Emergence Functional Nutrition is also a sponsor of this podcast, and you can learn more about both of them later on in the show. If you are a first-time listener, we would love for you to subscribe to Creating Community on your favorite podcast app. Creating Community with Dorian and Jake is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen directly at 1820marketing.com slash podcast. On this episode, we're interviewing award-winning author and Alvin City Council member Glenn Starkey. That name might sound familiar. To, well, some, to some people, maybe not everybody. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, well, let, let's jump right in. So the last name is Starkey. So are you related to somebody on this show? I believe so. You think so? <laughs> last I heard. All right, so well, tell us where you grew up. I grew up in East Texas, Nacogdoches, and later on in life moved to San Antonio. And okay. that's where I spent the largest part of my life until I went in the, in the service. Okay. And by service, you joined the Marine Corps. Correct. I went in the Marines at age 17, 1969. What was the reason for choosing the Marines? I don't think I've asked you that before. I just always had enjoyed um, the Marine Corps. All of my uncles had gone into the Navy and the Air Force and Army. And you said, I can't do that. I just, just, for some reason, I had always said, one day I want to go in the Marines, and I did. And you did, okay. And how long were you in the Marines? Six years. Wow. And, and I did full active six years because I extended on some duties. Okay. And through that, I know a lot of these stories, but some of the places that you served, I know you served in Okinawa, uh, Japan, mm-hmm. and um, other places. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh-huh. He clearly knows the stories. Yeah. I, I've been to about 15, 16 different countries. Um, Spain, France, Italy, Greece, Crete, Sardinia, the Azores, Okinawa, Japan, and a year in Vietnam. It sounds like you said that list before. <laughs> you just Three rattled times. it off like yeah. it was nothing. Well, tell me, what do, you, what do you think you got most out of the Marines? I was wild as a March hare. Okay. I was at 17. Right. And if I had to be honest, I had a choice between jail and going in the Marine Corps. Yeah, we know why you chose. <laughs> so, it sounded like you made a right choice, though. I, you know, I was young, and nobody was going to tell me what to do, so I went in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so you went to the Marines where nobody could tell you what to do? Yeah, it showed my intelligence level. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, discipline. Oh, I bet they loved you. Oh, they did. And um, then I just learned discipline. And then I learned you push yourself a lot farther than you ever realized you could. You know, I think that's what I've tried passing on to Morgan is you do as much as you can. And when you think you can't go anymore, your body's telling you to stop. Your mind can tell you to keep going and keep going. I learned that at age 17 in 
the Marine Corps boot camp. <laughs> right. And I was pushed, and and I'm glad they did. Yeah. Where did you go to? Where was boot camp for you? I was west of the Mississippi, so I went to San Diego. San Diego. That's right. The torture there is listening to the planes fly <laughs> over, right. over the Marine Corps recruit depot. <laughs> Got you. Okay. But to back up a little bit, you grew up in San Antonio. Yes. Or um, Military City, USA. Yeah. Fort Sam Houston, Lackland Air Force Base. Randolph Air Force Base. Air Force Base. And so your, your dad, I was going to say grandpa, my grandpa, your dad, <laughs> yes. was a police officer That's with Battle Heights for years. That oh, was he really? Okay. Yes. Which is one of those communities inside of San Antonio. Right. So, so he was a lieutenant, worked his way up to patrol. He had always wanted to be a police officer. Yeah. Is that what ultimately made you choose to go that route? Not really. No. <laughs> no. Um, actually, when, I, when everybody was getting out of the Marine Corps at that time, you had one of uh, very few choices. Well, first of all, returning veterans weren't exactly in the best light. Sure. And then you, the quickest profession was uh, law enforcement. Right. Because of the military structure that it has. And so... It's an easy transition. Yeah. And so I had... Uh, on the way prior to discharge, I had already been accepted for the San Antonio Police Department. Oh, okay. So it was a matter of when I got out and got back. So I did, and they had a hiring freeze in uh, San Antonio. About the time you were ready to go. <laughs> At the time I got back. So based on that, they said, well, it'll be about three years. And I said, no, not quite. So after, th- uh, I just said, forget it. Right. And I was with a friend. He brought me down here to the Gulf Coast, and we were partaking of adult beverages. And <laughs> You learned a lot in the six years. Yeah, I got you. Yes, <laughs> and so I woke up the next morning, and I said, where am I? They say, you're in Rocheron. Oh, wow. And then I said, where's that? They said, well, it's Brazoria County. I said, where's that? <laughs> <laughs> the first county of Texas? And they said, well, you know where Houston is? I said, yes. I said, we're south of it. Okay, finally I heard of a city I recognize. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So then I went to, uh, they said, well, go see the sheriff. That was Sheriff Robert R. Gladney. Okay. It's funny how we remember those names, huh? I went, yeah, double R, double R Gladney. Okay. And I went there and he hired me on the spot and said, go back to San Antonio, get your things, and you're, you will work out of Alvin. Oh, wow. And I said, where's Alvin? He said, <laughs> Even here's far. a map. And at that time, the north end only had one deputy patrolling, okay. 460 square miles. And so that's when I came back. I found an apartment. And and, and Pearland wasn't the sprawling no, metropolis Al- it is now, Alvin right? Was and Alvin, there was yeah. no 288. Correct. That was in 1975. Okay. I was around then, so yeah. I don't remember a lot about 75. You're like, I, mean, but I wasn't around. <laughs> I know you yeah, 75. Yeah. And, and so there was, you know, Manville was a what I call a one-horse I think there was two businesses a, there. It had a store on the corner of 1128 Highway 28. Yep, I remember. And, uh, Movies to go right next door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it, it was interesting, and the whole thing around here, Paraland was nothing like no, it is today. No, it was nothing, yeah. Because there was no 288. Um, patrol from Angleton to Paraland, well, Harris County line, the Galveston County line, to Fort Bend County line. Wow, so you covered the entire northern Brazoria County. 460 square miles. Wow. Me and a double barrel shotgun. Wow. <laughs> that, back then. That's, I mean, that's the that's, definition of a loner, <laughs> right? Yeah. They, they, 
they told you if anything happened, it'd be about 35 minutes right. before anybody can find you and get to you. Wow. So, so, yeah. so how is that? I mean, obviously coming from the Marines, you're well trained for that particular aspect of it, but how is that for somebody just coming in knowing that if you need backup, it might be a half an hour away? I can't say that it really, you handle it much different. You have military and law enforcement and Military, you're usually always with the group right? somehow. You just learn to, to be cautious and pay attention. And if you do those things, not get yourself deep into a situation right? that you can't get out of. Sure. And it just happens. Yeah. I, th- I think it's fascinating that obviously things have, have dramatically changed nowadays and, and even just population-wise, but that idea of you're 30 minutes away from help. But you're alone. Yeah. But there wasn't even necessarily, it seems, what do I know, but it appears that there wasn't quite as much um, communication necessarily between, say, the sheriff's department and municipal police officers. Right. The city of Alvin at that time, I think it had one officer on the street. Uh, We would come in to back them up, or they would come out to back us up. Everything, the structure, technologies were nothing. We we had a radio, Motorola handset radio that was giant walkie-talkie. And and the antennas on our cars stuck way up in the air. Sure, sure. Um, we didn't have, I, I didn't have a handset. It's to carry essentially with me. a CB radio, right? Yeah, it was well, yeah. it was yes. You yeah, I guess essentially it would yeah. be. But um, we used to joke about when we stop, you know, too quick, then the antenna would whip <laughs> back, and forth, back and forth. You know, yeah. And then when you want to play a joke on on one of the new. <laughs> Deputies. Which you have you, to do, yeah. You put a uh, one of those little small Christmas lights, real small, <laughs> at the top of the antenna. You okay. know, bend the antenna down tight sure. up there. And so whenever you key your radio, it lights up. <laughs> and so you'd see this car going down the road <laughs> with, a little, <laughs> with a little light on up top. But anyway, those were... That's funny. Well, I tell you what, when uh, Greg and Camille uh, Hernandez were here, I asked them this question. I'm going to ask you because you were in considerably earlier than they were, but what is the biggest change you've seen since the time you went in till now? Because you're still pretty active with all the things that you've done in the past. And Yes. Wow, that's a big question. Back then, they were starting to have what's called roadside lawyers. Okay. Everybody was a roadside lawyer. They knew their rights. They knew this. They knew that. Okay. And, and, that was the transition I started seeing is towards the end of my law enforcement career. You, you stop someone and they had heard their rights and what sure. they could do this and that. Now that's magnified. Yeah, now everyone just takes out their cell phone and records everything. And Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and everything's on YouTube and it's across the nation mm-hmm. within a few minutes of recording it. Yeah. Now we've been talking about being a police officer for a while, but you actually transitioned to uh, the oil field. Yes. And then you transitioned over to, at the time, Amico, Texas City. Which later became BP. Which later became BP. So oh, what yeah. was it like doing security at a plant? And again, I think of how it is nowadays with the structure and the strictness, for lack of a better term. And yeah. I don't know if it was that way 30, 40 years ago. People have often asked me, why did you leave police work? You know, well, I left it because I had a family and I had to pay the bills. And at that time, you were smaller. And so I had to truly make ends meet. I left police work, 
when out working in the oil field as a roustabout. After all the years of experience and training that I had, had undergone in the military and in law enforcement, I went out to the oil field starting at $3 more per hour higher with benefits, greater benefits, etc. Based on all of that, I stayed there. Uh, now, that was backbreaking work. There was no right. doubt about it. Right. Just digging ditches and hooking up oil wells. I did that for five and a half years. One day, the, this group came out, and they said, weren't you a police officer? And I said, yes, which everybody knew it was. And they said, we have an opening in our security department in Amico, and would you like to join? Well, that was a no-brainer. I mean, <laughs> I just, no more back-breaking work, right? That's right, which I had hurt my back several times and everything. But So I transferred over. One day, they interviewed me, transferred over, and that was so about 1985 or somewhere in there. And it was just being a guard. You were armed. You were all ex-police officers. And then as time went on, 30 years later, I moved up the line to become the security manager over any properties that Amico BP owned in Texas City. Mm-hmm. And, and based on that, we had to transition into terrorism. Uh, before, people denied wow. that terrorism would ever come to, the, to America. And so I was one of those guys that was always interested in terrorism because I had, in my studies and everything, in my training through the State Department. And based on that, I just started working. Well, then when the terrorism hit in America, they said, where's that crazy guy that likes uh, you know, studying and researching terrorism? And I said, here I am. <laughs> and they pulled me, and I started going to special wow. schools. And uh, as more training went on, I started going across the United States, inspecting other refineries. And then the government came in uh, with Code of Federal, Federal Regulations, and those had to be abided by to provide security uh, for refineries, facilities, petrochemical facilities, et cetera, shipping. And I started a ground level with uh, the Coast Guard. Okay. Based on that, I just started working up. Matter of fact, I was in on the initial meetings where they were defining 33 CFR 105, and it just goes on and on. So based on that, I just kept going, and then I had a, previously had security clearances when I was with the State Department, and so when they found out, I think it was Department of Energy, they renewed my security clearances. Sure. And then I started going to, well, I was still with BP. I started going to uh, the security briefings at FBI headquarters in Washington, and I'd go every so many months. Right. And then I would be briefed, and then I'd go back and have to brief the the corporation, but I couldn't tell them about the classified sure, stuff. Sure, And they... It's always a struggle. Yeah. yeah. So, and then from there, I developed it. So, after... 29 and a half years and 14, 16 hour days. Wow. And explosions and other factors. When the opportunity came to retire, I took it. You jumped on it. I, mm-hmm. I did. And it was, I didn't mind walking away at all. I'd given it my best. I'd made $28 million in security improvements and just in the last eight years while I was there. Yeah. Well, just before we take a break. Before, when you were first started doing the terrorism stuff, was do you feel like as a whole 
the oil and gas industry was ill-equipped to handle any kind of terrorism that came in oh, at yes. that time. And we're talking a long time ago. So, Saber, the industry was caught with its pants down around its ankles. They yeah. didn't know. And the oil industry, as far as they're concerned, we're there to make a profit. Right. We're not there to spend money on anything pertaining to security. That was then. Yeah, things have changed yeah. now for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah when absolutely. It, when it hit after right. 9-11... They had to be quiet for a while. Well, we all lived in a different world now. So. Oh, yes, very much so. Well, I think this is a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk to Glenn about being an author. Hi, this is Amy Shelton with Emergence Functional Nutrition. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Are you looking for a sustainable diet and lifestyle changes to get you to the place where you want to be? I invite you to book a free discovery session. Go to www.efn.fit. Hi, this is Carrie Perrin, President and CEO of the Alva Manville Area Chamber of Commerce. Here at the Chamber, we want to support local businesses. We want to give you visibility in the community. We want to give you opportunity in the community. And for those of you that aren't business owners, we want to let you know about all our wonderful Chamber members And if you support them, you support our community. So remember, whether you're a business or a community member, when you eat, shop, play, and support local business, you support the community. And we're back with award-winning author and Alvin City Council member, Glenn Starkey. So after retiring from BP, after 29 and a half years of doing that, plus everything else, and we didn't, you you dropped in, you worked for the State Department very randomly. (laughs) Um, <clears throat> name dropper. Yeah. Drop slid a ride in there. Uh, I know having grown up watching you write in your spare time with little bit you had, but can you talk a little bit about what, obviously now you're writing books, but I know it's not something that you started doing in retirement. You've been doing that for a while. Yes. I, I started in the last few years, last 10 years, I believe. And then what I did I had all these ideas. I started writing them. I'd been trying, didn't didn't know if I wanted to be an author or not, or I could be. So, and then I had these stories, and it was kind of a break. It, it was really a therapy for me because I was okay. under such stress with BP about all the terrorism acts and things. And so that's when I started um, writing the books. And, and I had these ideas, and I'd kind of write them and put them away, write them and put them away. Yeah. And then I did. At one time, I had two agents and had to had actually stop all of that. When 9-11 hit, I just had to stop. Okay, and, so you've been writing since before 2001. Correct, yeah. Okay. And, and so I'm, I, I can't even remember, 1990, 79, 80. So you're a 30-year overnight success. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it, it, it was one of those off and on. Start start to write, get going, something happened, you got to set it aside. So you didn't write with the intent of selling them to make money and retire and all then those kind of things. It was just for therapeutic. It, I just enjoyed it. It's like you have this story and I'm going to get it out. And, okay. And so I, I started writing them. Then I... After writing them, I started be, becoming curious. How, were these really a story? Or how do this? real authors do it? Yeah, <laughs> right, really. I got you. And so I uh, sent them off, and agents, and they called me back and said, we want to represent you, I guess. Oh, wow. So I realized I did have something. 
something there, yeah. And um, the agents retired uh, about the time that I had to put everything on hold with a uh, BP, and then technology all started changing because you had to write manuscripts and send them in and mail them in and give copies and envelopes for them right. to return them uh, to yes. you. Yes. And manuscripts would be So pages. were you typing on a typewriter? Were you yeah. typing on a computer and printing it out? Well, I started off with, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if you would remember, Commodore yep. 128, I believe sure. is what it was. And you could use it for word processing. Right. But basically everything was, you know, uh, typed. Right. And and that became difficult. So and then I just started to, when I put them on hold and the computers, technology changed. After As I came back from retirement, I guess, then I pulled all this stuff out and realized it, uh, that these were old stories had never been touched. Okay. I just started reworking them, rewriting them. Right. And then I started, then the next step, step was, okay, how good are these? Then I've got to have them test it. Right. So I started sending them off to contest yeah, how, how literary. Do you, how do you go about that? You just, wherever you find them, uh, a literary contest. And, and like one of them was a Military Writers Society of America. Okay. Big organization. Well, as it says, military writers. Said, Let me try this. So I set them off. I won a gold medal for Black Sun. I won oh, yeah. bronze medals, silver medals. Um, I started sending off to other locations. Right. And these all spread out uh, through the years. This sure. is not like in one year. You sent them all at the same time, right? So um, one by one. Yeah. And I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but one of the stories I love is he writes a blog and he wrote a blog about one of his favorite authors, Nicholas Guild, um, which I remember as a kid sitting on the shelf for these books. And he wrote kind of a book review of a book that okay. was written 20, 30 years ago. The dude reached out. They're friends wow. now. Yeah. Really? I went, my wife and I, Donna, um, we went up to his house in Maryland. Okay. For him. We spent the weekend with him and wow. his uh, fiance and it was great. He took me around. We went to Gettysburg, yep, to uh, Civil War grounds, and it's like having a tour guide. That is pretty cool. And, yeah, and he is a phenomenal writer. Then he became my mentor, right? And he would review my work. Gave me no mercy, <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. And that, you wanted that from the military. That probably was good for you. Oh, it was fine. I had no problem. I mean, when I read the Assyrian, is the book that when I first read it from him. I couldn't believe how good it was. It's, yeah. it's one of those two-inch thick books, um, and and I've read it once every year. Okay, and it's unbelievable how good it is. So he writes historical fiction, et cetera, et cetera. And Nicholas Guild, G U I L D. Okay, and he is a phenomenal, phenomenal author. Okay, New York Times, all this other stuff. Very cool. And and so he is my mentor. Well, and you mentioned that it was a military historical fiction, right? The Assyrian. Which is the way you describe your books when people typically ask you, right? That's the primary genre that I like. Okay. Is historical fiction. So, what can somebody expect from a book of yours? Well, they're going to expect reality. Okay. There's going to be fact, 
Uh, I love to research because I enjoy history. Right. So, for example, Black Sun is the story of my grandfather during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, he had always told me he rode with Pancho Villa. I just listened to his stories. Right. And then I had an aunt that uh, began doing some research. She started giving me documents, and I realized, put one and one together. Maybe there's some truth to this. And there was truth to it. Wow. And so I wrote the book. And every one of the characters in there is real. You can see a name, go on the internet, look it up. And find it. And find it. You know, battles. I researched the battle, everything. Because it was the insanity of war. Yeah. The people, you talk about people being crazy. These people that started the revolution were crazy. Right. I mean, one talk. One talk you you kind of have to be, though, right? There's a spiritualist. At, uh, Madero was a spiritualist. Uh, right. Talk to ghost. He got advice on should he run? What should he do? What should he dress like? <laughs> okay. I just you know, and, and there's a multitude That's fascinating. Of yeah, multitude yeah. of stories. Right. And each one of my books, I do. I wrote the Dagger Man. It's about Jesus and another uh, man born in the same star. One becomes the Messiah. One becomes a, an assassin. Right. And and based on it, I started doing all the research. But then my wife and I went to Israel, and when I got back. I had learned so much that I deleted the three chapters oh, I'd wow. already written and rewrote. Because it could be more Because realistic. I'd seen the places where Jesus walked. Gotcha. I'd seen the stones. I'd seen the iron that they were held in. All of those things make a big impact on you. And yeah, so that's true. what I, so I try to bring out. And I want people to feel like they're a part of that book. Right. And that's realism. I think one of the things that fascinates me is the amount of research because it is, I'm, I'm running through them in my head now, but they're all pretty much different. Yeah, uh, I know we've talked about historical fiction. Coffee shop, they're yeah. different. Yeah, um, one's in Egypt, yeah. one's about Mongolia, one's about yeah. uh, Mexican Revolution. Do you find something you want to write about and then research it or are you kind of read and go, oh, hey, that's neat, and then you you build your book around it? What comes first? What's the chicken? What's the egg? <laughs> that's a good question. And nicely worded. <laughs> and, and, and I'm I'm asked many times that question, where do you get your ideas from? Right. I could be driving down the road and hear something on the radio. I could be talking with an individual, just having a normal conversation, and something they say keys an idea. Hmm. Um, I had a dream one night. It used to be a dream all the time, all the time. Same dream. Out of it came Year of the Ram, about set in Mongolia. Mm -hmm. uh, it had the, the dream and then wrote the book around it. Right. Cobra and Scarab was history. I, I loved history. It was about hot ships at the woman that wanted to be king and uh, pharaoh. So everything comes from a different idea. I, I, I just wrote a book, The Councilman, which is not about the <laughs> yourself. I mean, council. <laughs> it's set back on a corrupt councilman back in the... 60s, 50s. So definitely not about today's councilman. No, no, no for sure not. No, I have yeah, to wait uh, at least 50 years after they're dead before I can tell the story. Gotcha. <laughs> but um, and then people, uh, the councilman really went over good because people said, "Well, that's our area. Right. It's Alvin. Actually, I named I used Morgan because Alvin was going to be named Morgan. Right. There was already a community that name. Sure. So anyway, I did the switch and uh, I wrote about it and people just enjoyed it right so based on that idea the book i just recently sent to a publisher mckenna is about uh it's about sex trafficking it's in 2018 and 
they start investigating, doing an investigation on a, a headless, limbless body that's found in a bio. Okay. But then the investigator's daughter, 14-year-old daughter, disappears and gets caught oh, up wow. in a ring. And so it's the story is him searching for her. Wow. So I thought, well, that's pretty good. Well, then my mind just keeps rolling. I was watching a reading about the POW camp that used to be here in Alabama. Yeah, you and I talked about that this the past German week. POW yeah, camp. yeah. And matter of fact, it was right there by my house, my subdivision. I started reading about it, and I got a story, and I thought, okay. Then I thought, what What if uh, a former Jewish Holocaust survivor, right? survivor is in a store and looks up, and there's the former guard wow. that used to be cruel to everyone yeah. you know, and kill people. And sure. say, you know, what would you do? And playing the if game, that's where I came up with ideas. Wow. And so then it just carried on. Yeah. And that's well, they just come from strange places. Uh, well, I, I'm making my way currently through Into the Cauldron, which I believe talking to you, it came from a project you were working on with the Alvin see? Museum, right? So yes. tell us about that story and how it relates to Into the Cauldron. Um, John G. Slover was a man from Wisconsin, and he, he uh, <clears throat> trying my thoughts rumble, get sure. rolling too fast oh, here. No, I got you. But he uh, went into the uh, Civil War as a uh, cavalry. Right. And so what happened was, instead of going east to Shiloh and other battlefields, he went to the west. He was sent to Kansas, where he had to protect um, Not what settlers. Not <laughs> and, right. and he was fighting... He was fighting um, the guerrillas, okay, and and the Indians, and on and on. So from there, um, after the that, he kept his his military life in a diary. And then right. he came down, and it was a detailed diary, right? Pretty much detail one day yeah. every day, right? Every day something about it and about his life. So then he comes down here and brings his family. Um, he sets up a house, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually here in Alvin, he built the John G. Slover. He built, they called it the Rogers. Right. He called it his Chinese palace. Okay. The reason he called it was the way the architecture was These on, on the top of these points. Sure. He called it the Chinese palace. So based on that, um, he was getting a divorce. He had a heart attack and died. And oh, wow. so his... They, they, he was not fully divorced, sure. so his wife got that property, and then down the line it changed and changed yeah. names. So, I wrote the the I was with the museum one day. They said, "Look, here's a Civil War diary," and I started looking at it, and then I said, "They said, well, we'd love to have it into a book form." So, I thought, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> so we took it, we photocopied every page, and. Then I just started doing the research right. on the family, et cetera. The man had been married five times. Oh, wow. Uh, he had several okay. children. That's why I called the t the title of the that book is Through the Storms, the John G. Slover Diary. Gotcha. And people said, well, what storms? I said, well, we've married five times. Yeah. That's enough storms. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's enough storms. <laughs> and, and then the hurricanes and stuff, he survived. But he moved here, lived here. So I wrote the book for him. Nice. I enjoyed his Civil War diary so much 
And I kept thinking about it. So I just made a fictional character. Sure. And followed that diary. Nice. And and just had him kind of the same encounters. Yeah. And so your next book, McKenna, is coming out January ish. Somewhere in January ish. I'd say the end of end of December in January. So it's all done at this point. It's a matter of getting it printed, getting it published, getting it out there. It is, yeah, up to the publishers now. Gotcha. And they'll they'll work on it. Gotcha. And it's great because all of my books, yes, all of them except for the one for the museum. I wrote that and turned the proceeds over to the museum. Right. You can go to the museum gift shop and buy the book there, or you can order it online from a bookseller. And, and they're located on Sealy Street for those that don't know, one block off of Gordon. Right down from 1820. Right. Thanks for the plug. And so um, one of the things that most people don't know is that the majority of my book covers are made by Jake. Your son. Yes. And and I'm just making a claim to you as all. He has designed them uh, along with guidance from my grandson. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Caleb. Yes. Yes. Way to go, Caleb. Yes. Caleb does. He, he, uh, he has opinions whether or not I was to him. <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. that and and then, aside from my books being available in all major booksellers and stuff like that, they're also available at the coffee shop. Thanks at for the, the plug again. Eighteen twenty coffee house, right? And that has been great because people first maybe they they know about the coffee house, they don't know about the books, yeah, or they know about my books. Mm-hmm. And they haven't heard the coffee house. So well, there are definitely people coming in going, "Hey, I'm here to get Glenn's book. I'm here to get Glenn's book." And we have to point them in the right direction yeah, to get yeah. over to the cabinet. So, and what you've done special about those books is you've signed yes. all of those copies, right? They're, they're autographed, and also, but most people don't realize, they can go there, and the books are all one price, fifteen mm-hmm. even, fifteen right? even, right? Whereas, like Black Sun, if you order it from Amazon, I think it's twenty eight dollars. Right. And so when it's sold on Amazon, it's controlled by whoever, the price is controlled by whoever's selling them, right? I think that's what you said to me. Yeah, you're at the, the mercy. Book. You're at the gotcha. mercy of the of Amazon or whatever bookseller because they'll put it, put it on sale. Gotcha. The book prices are set by a publisher. Sure. And in the higher the price, or from the way I figure it, the higher the price are back from many years, several years ago. Gotcha. Um, but... When Amazon and Barnes and Noble and those are all selling them, they uh, they set the price. Gotcha. And then it's chopped. And I and E-books essentially and essentially you're doing all the work. <laughs> you're yeah. doing the research. Yeah. We just talked about how much research goes into them, how much writing goes into them, how much thought process. And and the changes, <clears throat> the changes in the industry, mean that your big top name authors like your Grishams and such kings and so they're forth. assisted in their advertising by the publishing house. They put them out there, but. Um, for the the rav, normal indie author, you're doing all the advertising. Matter of fact, if you, you can have Random House or Penguin or sure. whoever you want, they can be your publisher. Okay, you still have the responsibility of getting your name out there, advertising to get get your books. Wow! And those advances that you hear about people getting, if they send Random or whatever house sends you an advance. Of whatever it may be, let's just say a hundred thousand. You better sell books. You better make up that difference, right? Yeah, because if you don't, there's a clause in those contracts where that money goes back to them. Wow. So it's it, that's where the so industry be careful. changed, right? Yeah. Yes. 
Well, and, and the last thing I'll say is that it's not uncommon for somebody to be able to find you at 1820 Coffee House. I know we have monthly sure. events. You're there. No, I'm not going to say you're there all the time because that would be a misnomer, but you are there frequently enough that somebody might see you when they yeah. stop by. Oh, yes. I'm, I love to go there, uh, talk with everyone. I, if I have a meeting with someone, that's where I'll hold it. Right. Um, we are there with the different events that y'all hold, uh, which are great. My wife loves them. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so we go. The brain grinders, which right. make me feel foolish. <laughs> right. All the trivia. Uh, right. you know? yeah. But uh, man, my wife, because I read so much, uh, she's like, you should know these answers. She expects you to carry the team. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. But, well, and it, it, sometimes the trivia mm-hmm. questions, not to get off subject too far, but sometimes the trivia questions are specifically about some random knowledge, not necessarily something that would suit your knowledge. Right? Yes. Which is why we encourage people to get people of all ages on your team. Yeah. Don't get a whole bunch of 60-year-olds because right. you're all going to know the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a variety of things, yeah. Yes. So it is fun. And I, and I do love writing. I've met a lot of people, uh, made a lot of friends. Yeah. Uh, new acquaintances. I have people that contact me and say, I just got through reading your book and I loved it, blah, blah, blah. And that's great. Out of the blue to just get uh, an email or yeah. a letter from someone. And then their touched. clubs. Yeah. Their clubs. Uh, oh, wow. Reading clubs. Yeah. And uh, there was one group uh, was uh, a bridge club. Okay. And, and they started passing my books around. Okay. So they read them. Do, the, do, does anybody come in and ask you to read their books? Oh, oh well. Like, just contact you and say, hey, are, I'm trying to write. Can you give me some pointers? Can you help me out? Wait, oh, yes. I I have that. Okay. Um, generally, I would just help give them all the basics. I don't have a problem with doing that. Authors help authors. Sure. Authors always want other authors to succeed. Right. It's a, it, like, they're I think, not jealous. Yeah, it's a, it's a rising ship. Yeah. Rising rain raises all ships, right? Because... Uh, there's three of us here. All three of us might write something different. We could take the same subject matter, start writing, but all of us would be different. Absolutely. And then somebody would correct all my spelling errors and my grammatical <laughs> errors. Probably you, actually. Because <laughs> right now, Jake does it. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I know, what, I know what my strengths are, and that is not it. I, but that's okay. I, I, I own it. And, and so people can find you online on Facebook at Glenn Starkey Author. They can find you on Instagram at G Starkey Books. And they can find you online on the interwebs at glennstarkey.net. Two N's on two Glenn. Ends, Glenn. Yes, that two N's. Correct. Yes. Glennstarkey.net. Thank you, Glenn, for coming on the show. If you're interested in sponsoring Creating Community, we'd love to talk to you. Our goal is to reach our community and let them know about great leaders and businesses and other interesting people that are helping to make it better. If you want to be a part of that, please email us at info at 1820marketing.com to start the conversation. Speaking of sponsorships, thank you to Emergence Functional Nutrition and the Alvin Manville Area Chamber of Commerce for sponsoring this show. Learn more about them at efn.fit and alvinmanvillechamber.org. Creating Community with Dorian and Jake is produced by 1820 Marketing and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Show notes and more are available at 1820marketing.com slash podcast as well. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week. And thank you once again to the chamber for letting us use the council room for... Start that over. Okay.
And thank you once again to the Alvin Manville Area Chamber of Commerce for letting us use their boardroom to record once again.